One who reads through the books of Matthew and John finds in them not only the account of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and the story of the establishment of his kingdom on earth, but the evidence is that he fulfilled the prophecies concerning the promised Messiah. These two apostles seem to have been concerned with the fact that the Lord fulfilled the prophecies, as well as doing wonderful and awe-inspiring works before people. The people were, were well acquainted with the scriptural basis of prophecy. Surely, said Amos, the Lord God will do nothing, he except, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. And so if this man who did such mighty works was truly the Messiah, promised for nearly 4,000 years, he must fulfill all of the prophecies which have been inspired of the Holy Ghost concerning him. There are numerous such prophecies in the Old Testament. I shall enumerate those called to our attention by Matthew and John. You will have no trouble affirming it. They attest Jesus Christ, the only one whom they fit. He was born of a, a virgin. He was to be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. He was to come out of Egypt and yet be born in Bethlehem of Judea. His enemies would cause great mourning for children in Bethlehem, and he would be called a Nazarene. The Nazarenes were despised, and so people could call him a Nazarene, meaning despised. He was to do many marvelous acts which their recipients were not to make known on the streets. He would cast out devils and heal the sick. He was to teach in parables, and when he was proclaimed king, he would come lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. He would make the temple a house of prayer, driving the money changers from it in the process. He would suffer an ignominious death. His executioners would part his raiment among them and cast lots for his garment. And from the death price of 30 pieces of silver, a potter's field would be purchased. In the process of dying, he would cry out, I thirst. In spite of the Roman custom of breaking the bones of those they crucified, the prophets proclaimed that not one of his bones would be broken. He was to make his grave with the rich. And after all this, he would be called by Isaiah, wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. As the two apostles wrote about the Lord, they pointed out that the Savior of mankind had fulfilled to the minutest detail those events foretold by the prophets. Luke summarized the Savior's life in these words, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. While not so much in detail, other great events of importance to the progress of the Lord's work have been prophesied. Isaiah outlined the fact that some of his people would be brought down and that they should speak out of the dust, and that this voice would be as a familiar spirit speaking out of the ground. Ezekiel spoke of the sticks of Judah and Ephraim, which, having been written on, should become one in the hand of the Lord. The Lord said unto Enoch, as though to confirm what would be said by Isaiah, that righteousness will I send down out of heaven, and truth will I send forth out of the earth, to bear testimony of mine only begotten, his resurrection from the dead, and also the resurrection of all men. 
and righteousness and truth will I cause to sweep the earth as with a flood. Lehi quotes Joseph, the son of Jacob, as speaking of a great prophet of the latter days who would be his descendant and be named after Joseph himself, and that the father of this great prophet would be named Joseph also. The only event that has welded all of these separate prophecies into a coherent whole has been the appearance of Moroni, an ancient Nephite prophet, to Joseph Smith, and his subsequent guidance of the young prophet as he literally brought forth out of the ground the Book of Mormon, which has indeed a familiar spirit as one speaking out of the dust for a remnant of Israel long since dead. The later joining of the Book of Mormon, the history of the dealings of Christ with the people who were, as Ezekiel said, of Ephraim, with the account of Christ's dealings with Judah, the Bible, is a literal fulfillment of the prophecies I have just mentioned by Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Enoch. While the choosing of Joseph Smith, the son of Joseph Smith, is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joseph, son of Jacob, recorded in 2 Nephi, the connection of these two histories with the prophet Joseph Smith is miraculous. No man could have brought it about, nor have foreseen the events by which it was restored to the earth. Nothing like it has ever been done before, and yet after its accomplishment we know that it could have taken place in no other way. We can take comfort that the great events of the future have been prophesied in considerable detail, and that when they are fulfilled, the events of that fulfillment will occur as naturally and as surely as have those of the distant past. There will be scoffers and disbelievers in that day also who will upon up until the very moment of the appearance of the Son of Man declare that the, de the believers are fools for believing. As though a great musical oratory was being performed, there have been minor themes to accompany the greater prophecies. These have pointed to the local events which guided the way to those magnificent chords of the main theme. Jacob blessed Joseph to have his heritage extend to the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. An angel visited Zacharias and informed him of the coming of the birth of John the Baptist. Samuel called by the voice of the Lord to be his prophet instead of Eli, constantly raised his voice in prophecy over Israel. The prophecy of Joseph Smith that the saints would be driven to the Rocky Mountains, there to become a mighty people, was in confirmation of an earlier prophecy of Isaiah, that the mountain of the Lord's house should be established in the top of the mountain, mountains. This prophecy was fulfilled and further confirmed by Brigham Young, who, when entering the valley, rose from his sick bed in Wilfred Woodruff's carriage and said, This is the right place. There have been prophecies about men in these latter days of equal import. Given by pure inspiration to loyal and pure people, they are as prophetic as if they were given and made by the major prophets. Eliza R. Snow, seeing the small son of Rachel Ivan's grant playing on the floor in the house of William C. Staines, prophesied in tongues that he would grow up to be an apostle. Zina D. Young interpreted the prophecy. That small boy was President Heber J. Grant. In 1887, Patriarch John Smith said to a young man aged 13, For the eye of the Lord is upon thee, the Lord has a work for thee to do, in which thou shalt see much of the world. It shall be thy lot to sit in council with thy brethren, and preside among the people, and exhort thee, saints, to faithfulness.
A confirmation of this took place in far-off Scotland in a meeting high in spiritual manifestation when a Latter-day Saint of Scotch ancestry spoke. Those who were there heard President James L. McMurrin address one of those present and prophesy that he would sit in the highest councils of the Church. That one sat in the highest councils of the Church in the person of President David O. McKay. About 65 years ago, Sister Mary Kimball, wife of Crozer Kimball, watched a small boy climb into a buggy driven by the, his father, Andrew. As they drove away, she turned to her husband and was inspired to say, That boy will someday be the prophet of the Lord. That boy sits here today presided over, presiding over this conference as the president of the Church, President Spencer W. Kimball. Constantly in the lives of the members, prophetic statements have been made and are made. If a person who is ill is given a blessing, inspired promises are often made by the elder pronouncing it. Is a baby given a name? The blessing following may be and is often prophetic. Does a father give what we call a father's blessing? Then to, <clears throat> in his patriarchal position, he may be as prophetic as was Jacob in blessing his twelve sons. Promises made when inspired of the Holy Ghost will be fulfilled if the persons to whom they are given keep in harmony with the divine principle. There have been many occasions when people have had direct revelation to themselves as to important events that take place in their own lives about which they had no previous warning. Many men and women in this audience can testify that they know beforehand, they knew beforehand of the call to be made upon them and the requirements of the call. As with Enos, the word of the Lord came into their minds, saying. In each case, the words were sure <clears throat> and clear to the recipient. And finally, unto many of the faithful comes the inspiration as to callings and positions to be given to people who are important to the Church. Men and women have known by the power of the Holy Ghost who would fill an apostolic vacancy or one of stake or award importance. They do not voice these inspirations, but have the deep satisfaction of recognizing the source and the joy of having the Lord share with them in advance the foretold action. All of these variations of the gift of prophecy come to those whose lives merit the presence of the Holy Ghost. Was it not the prophet Joseph who said that the spirit of the Holy Ghost is the spirit of prophecy? All of us should court it and be enveloped in its beneficent influence. All of these prophecies, great and small, bear witness that the Lord has known the end from the beginning and has warned and forewarned those who would listen of the solemn and sure march of the work of Christ to its certain and ultimate conclusion. We who sit here today are a part of that great movement. If we pay our, play our part well and sustain the Lord Jesus Christ, and his living prophet, all will be well with us. <clears throat> I desire to include a prayer for President Spencer W. Kimball as I close these remarks. Thy servant, Lord, has answered to thy call to be thy mouthpiece on the earth and to its farthest part. Give him strong heart to bear thy Bear thy burden well. <clears throat> Enlarge his voice that he may 
Tell thy message to thy people, Lord, and to the far-flung who have not yet heard. O Lord, we know he is thy chosen seer. As he now speaks, give us the voice to hear. In the name of Christ, amen. This has been a glorious and inspiring day. And I ask for an interest in your faith and prayers that my remarks may be in harmony with the teachings of our Savior. I have felt the Spirit of the Lord during this conference, particularly this morning in the solemn assembly, as one of the great privileges we have as members of the Church is the opportunity to sustain our leaders. It was a great blessing to me to be able to raise my hand and to sustain President Spencer W. Kimball as the mouthpiece of God on earth and as the presiding high priest over the priesthood of the Church. The Lord says that he is to be like unto Moses, a seer, a revelator, a translator, and a prophet, having all the gifts of God which he bestows upon the head of the Church. I know that he has been prepared and raised up at this particular time, and I sustain him with all of my heart and with all of the faith that I have, and I will enthusiastically follow his direction. I also sustain the calling of elders L. Tom Perry this day and elders Fiennes and elders Maxwell. I know that these callings have been inspired of the Lord. Recently, a new book was published with a rather startling title, Jesus Now. The reviewers announced that this is a brilliant book. The writer states, Jesus is disappearing from the minds of men, and it is just as well that he is, for the Jesus that we are losing is the Jesus that we have created. The author asks the question, what does Jesus mean to modern man? Responses to this question will vary when Easter is celebrated next Sunday throughout the so-called Christian world. Services of various types will be held by some people paying their honor to the man known as Jesus of Nazareth. Some will think of Jesus as a prophet. Some will think of him as a teacher. Some will think of him as just an ordinary man. Unfortunately, not many will think of him as our Savior and Redeemer. And fewer still will believe the Father's words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What does Jesus mean to you and to me? The Jesus I know and believe in is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. This witness has been revealed to me by the blessing and influence of the Holy Ghost. I know that he is the author of the plan of salvation and exaltation, the creator of the world and all that is in it, that he is our Savior who loves each of us and who died on the cross for us who teaches us compassion and forgiveness, 
the friend of all, healer of the sick, the giver of peace to all who will listen and believe. Modern man must not be led astray from the ancient and latter-day truths, truths and spiritual experiences that occurred when prophets walked and talked with Jesus. What did Jesus mean to the ancient apostles? What did he mean to Peter? Mark, writing of the events on the morning of the resurrection, states that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, were directed by the young man they encountered as they entered the sepulcher, go tell his disciples and Peter. They were directed specifically to inform Peter. Peter and John hurried to the sepulcher. Peter entered, saw the neatly folded linen cloths and the handkerchief that had been about his head. Peter was now a personal witness of this great event. On the day of Pentecost, Peter witnessed the rushing of the mighty wind and the pouring out of the Holy Ghost. He preached of the glorious gospel and testified of Jesus of Nazareth. People were pricked in their hearts and asked, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter, with that newly developed depth of conviction, replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Three thousand souls believed and were baptized. They felt of the power and the spirit of our Lord's senior apostle. Could we ever doubt what Jesus meant to Peter? I am always strengthened by the fervor and magnitude of John's conviction. There was never any doubt. He testified, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The apostle Paul knew, understood, and testified of Jesus. The manifestation to Paul on the road to Damascus changed the course of his life, as he indicated in his own testimony. Lord, what wilt thou have me do? And later, testifying to the Corinthian saints, he said, Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again the third day, was seen of above five hundred, and last of all, he was seen of me also. It may be beyond our own comprehension to realize what Jesus meant to Nephi when the resurrected Christ appeared on, the west, on this western continent, saying, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. I am the light and the life of the world, and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world. Arise and come forth unto me, that ye may thrust your hands into my side, and also that ye may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth, and have been slain for the sins of the world. 
Then Nephi writes, The multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side and did feel the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And when they had all gone forth and had witness for themselves, they did cry out with one accord, saying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Most High God. And they did fall down at the feet of Jesus and did worship him. They had been in his presence and they could testify. What did Jesus mean to the boy Joseph Smith? The appearance of God the Father and Jesus Christ to the boy prophet in modern times is described in his own testimony. I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son, hear him. President Joseph F. Smith declared, The greatest event that has ever occurred in the world since the resurrection of the Son of God from the tomb and his ascension on high was the coming of the Father and the Son to that boy, Joseph Smith. During the prophet's life, he told but one story. In a little schoolhouse in Michigan in 1834, Edward Stevenson heard him testify, I am a witness that there is a God, for I saw him in open day. Stevenson then recorded, Oh, how these words filled me with joy unspeakable to behold one who, like Paul the Apostle, could with boldness testify that he had been in the presence of Jesus Christ. Spiritual knowledge and spiritual experiences must not and need not disappear from the mind of modern man because the testimonies of ancient and modern prophets have been recorded for man's own benefit. And today believers testify of these truths. Modern man must replace uncertainties and doubt with a desire to know more of Jesus. It is our responsibility and glorious opportunity to bear constant testimony of Jesus the Christ. We must testify to the world of his Godship, the actuality of his birth in the flesh of both divine and moral parentage. He was selected to perform the essential mission of the restoration and the redemption. This he did. He was crucified, rose from the grave, thus making it possible for every human being to be resurrected through this marvelous atonement of Jesus. Saint and sinner alike, all can be placed on the pathway to eternal progression. Everyone who accepts him and is repentant receives forgiveness for his past sins and opportunity to gain exaltation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the, unto the Father but by me. Could the mind of man possibly de develop a more no noble concept for the destiny of man. Jesus Christ is the central figure. 
to the question, what does Jesus mean to modern man? I testify that he means everything. To this statement, I bear solemn witness in his name. Amen. It's a great privilege to be here today to address you. My heart is filled with wonderful feelings as I contemplate the great blessings we enjoy as a result of the reestablishment of the Church of Jesus Christ to the earth 144 years ago today. His Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, exists for the perfecting of the saints and for the unifying of the family of our Father in Heaven. To the members of our Church, President Stephen L. Richards has said, the home, or family, has an enlarged significance that is subordinate to nothing else in life, for it constitutes not only the source of our greatest happiness here in this life, but also the foundation of our exaltation and glory in the life to come. After all, it is essentially a religious institution. It has its origin in a religious ceremony. It is the fulfillment of a divine command. Its government is of a religious nature, and its finest product, products are spiritual. The Lord has said that in the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood, the power of godliness is manifest. Thus, clothed with the holy priesthood of God and commissioned by the Lord, a man takes his place at the head of his family. Through his righteous leadership, the power of godliness may be manifest in his home. This sacred obligation and stewardship he shares with his wife, his helpmate. In partnership with our Heavenly Father, they experience the joy of creation as children bless their home and enlarge their family circle. A wife and mother will be an inspiration to her family and to her husband and will honor him in his divine appointment as head of their family. Elder Hugh B. Brown has said to the women of the Church, There is no better way to worship and glorify God than by assisting his sons on the upward and difficult climb. This takes patience, tolerance, forbearance, and other typically feminine virtues. A husband and father will endeavor to be noble and faithful in carrying forth his sacred responsibility to teach correct principles to his children by precept and by example. Recently, I heard a father tell of the powerful influence his own testimony and example had in the life of his daughter. His lovely daughter was being pursued by an ardent admirer, one who had unfortunately turned away from the Church and who, through his wrongdoings, had been cut off from the blessings of the priesthood and Church membership. This girl thought she loved him and believed she might be happy with him. Her concerned parents invited the young man into their home and tried to convince him of the need to put his life in order and to follow Christ. The father bore a fervent testimony of the reality of the Savior 
and of the joy that comes through obedience to his gospel. However, his words were rejected by the young man. In fact, the boy scoffed at such ideas and afterward tried to convince the girl that her father was old-fashioned and a hypocrite. This accusation, the father said, was the young man's undoing. That daughter defended her father and his beliefs. She knew him. She knew the validity of his testimony. She knew her father lived as he believed. His sincere love of the gospel and his example of living its teachings she could not doubt nor deny. Her love, she would say, for another whose testimony was like that of her father, whose life would be blessed with the joy and peace that comes from living the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, she is the wife of such a man, a happy mother of a lovely family born in the covenant of an eternal marriage. Oh, how blessed is the influence of a righteous father. The scriptures tell us that, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman in the Lord. It was said of the great General Robert E. Lee that if he was early trained in the way he should go, his mother trained him. If he was always good, as his father wrote of him, she labored to keep him so. If his principles were sound and his life a success, to her more than to any other, should the praise be given. A family member wrote of him, As Robert grew in years, he grew in grace. He was like the young tree whose roots, firmly embedded in the earth, hold it straight from the hour it was first planted till it develops into majestic proportions. With the fostering care of such a mother, the son must go straight, for she had planted him in the soil of truth, morality, and religion, so that his boyhood was marked by everything that produces nobility of character in manhood. Following a 13-year-old girl's successful completion of a difficult and challenging assignment, she wrote this to her mother. I have a secret known only to me. It helps me. It holds me. It keeps me happy. You will not believe this, but surely it's true. It is my mother. Yes, mother, it's you. You, you are my secret strength, and to you I'll always be true. And here is a message which comes from my heart. Mother, I love you. A mother's inherent qualities of trust, courage, and faith lend strength to every member of the family. Children also provide strength to the lives of family members. As we celebrate the Easter season, we reverence the most significant demonstration of brotherly love ever shown. The atoning sacrifice of Christ was a supreme example of unselfish love. While Jesus was our only brother who could make such a sacrifice for us, each of us can and should make Christ-like sacrifices daily for one another through unselfish action and willing service. It is in the home 
that we experience many opportunities to do this. One day, my older brother, Lynn, came hurrying home from high school basketball practice with bringing a teammate with him. Upon entering the house, both made a dash for the kitchen to satisfy their hungry appetites. My brother's friend loudly described his feeling of hunger by using a few vulgar and profane words to accent his anxious mood. Lynn quickly, quietly, but firmly said, Hey, don't talk like that. My little brothers might hear you. I don't want them to learn words like that. Besides, they might think less of you than they ought to. Unknown to my brother, my friend and I did hear that conversation, but the profane words were quickly erased from my mind by the thoughtful concern and courage shown by my brother. That experience made a positive, lasting impression on my young mind. At the risk of sacrificing a friendship, his kindly chastisement of his friend taught me a message and a lesson of love and concern for others and of courage to uphold the right. So important are our relationships with our family members as we learn these lessons of life that family home evening has been revealed by the Lord as a prescribed means for the enduring development of all family members. Each Monday night, <clears throat> families will gather together with Father presiding to experience one of the highlights of the week's activities. During this special time together, the family, regardless of size and circumstance, may receive instruction and inspiration. Here in the sacredness of home, father and mother teach correct gospel principles to their children. The children also have opportunities to teach and to share their thoughts and talents. Often, the most effective learning takes place as family members help each other prepare for family night. Parents and children increase in their love and appreciation for one another as they participate in family home evening and strive to apply the principles learned there throughout the following weeks and years. President Kimball, whom we have sustained as president and prophet today, and of whom I testify is a living prophet of the Lord Jesus Christ, has indicated that heaven was in his home when home evening was held. He has also said, While one objective is reached by merely being together, yet the additional and greater value can come from the lessons of life. The Father will teach the children. Here they can learn integrity, honor, dependability, sacrifice, and faith in God. Life's experiences in the scriptures are the basis of the teaching, and this, wrapped up in filial and parental love, makes an impact nothing else can make. Thus, Reservoirs of righteousness are filled to carry children through the dark days of temptation and desire, of drought and skepticism. As they grow up, the children cooperate in building this storage for themselves and the family. And so we have as a basic part of the Lord's programs the home evening 
and the family prayers and the teaching of gospel principles in our homes. The Lord has blessed us with families that we might maintain our eternal relationship with Him. May we recognize the importance of this divine blessing and do all in our power to fulfill this sacred responsibility. May the Spirit of the Lord be with us in our homes. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My brothers and sisters, that which has transpired here today has my wholehearted approval. To these men who have been appointed of God as prophets, I give my wholehearted support and loyalty. The Old Testament speaks of many great prophets, the last of the prophets in old Israel who held the fullness of divine authority was Elijah the Tishbite. A family came in the land when Elijah, as commanded of God, sealed the heavens shut that it did not rain. During this famine, he was miraculously fed by ravens at the brook Cherith, which flowed into the Jordan River. Then God sent Elijah to the city of Zarephath and told him he had appointed a widow there who would feed him. Elijah met this widow at the outskirts of the city and asked her to give him food to eat. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake but an handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah then promised her in the name of the Lord that if she would feed him, she would never lack for food. I have pondered on the faith of that woman who, on the promise of a humble man of God, put her life and the life of her son in the balance. Obediently, she baked food and fed Elijah, and then followed the miracle of the fulfillment of the prophet's promise. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. I have tried to compare her spirit of obedience with our willingness to obey the word of God as spoken by modern prophets. These prophets hold the same fullness of authority given to Elijah. They have told us to keep at least, at least a year's supply of food on hand for any future emergency. We have only their word of prophecy to rely on, just as the widow rely, relied on that of Elijah. We should obey as she did. By so doing, we will be able to save ourselves and our families from want. Some members of the Church have said to me, Why should we keep a store of food on hand? If a real emergency came in this lawless world, a neighbor would simply come with his gun and take it from us. What would you do if a person came and demanded your food? I replied that I would share whatever I had with him, and he wouldn't have to use a gun to obtain that assistance either. I wouldn't, replied one man. I have a gun and I wouldn't hesitate to use it to defend my family. Anyone would have to kill me first in order to get food away from me. After all, they bring their own misery on themselves by not being prepared. Well, one way to solve this problem is to convert your neighbors to become obedient Latter-day Saints <laughs> with their own supply of food. If every family were provided for, our stores would be safe for the use of our families. But not all people have sufficient faith 
to share with others as did the widow who shared with Elijah. I remember the words of another prophet who loved the poor and the unfortunate. He said, And also ye yourselves will succor those that stand in need of your succor. Ye will administer of your substance unto him that standeth in need, and ye will not suffer that the beggar putteth up his petition to you in vain, and turn him out to perish. Perhaps thou shalt say, The man has brought upon himself his misery. Therefore I will stay my hand, and will not give unto him of my food, nor impart unto him of my substance, that he may not suffer. For his punishments are just. But I say unto you, O man, whosoever doeth this, the same hath great cause to repent. And except he repenteth of that which he hath done, he perisheth forever, and hath no interest in the kingdom of God. For behold, are we not all beggars? Do we not all depend upon the same being, even God, for all the substance which we have? For both food and raiment and for gold and for silver and for all the riches which we have of every kind? I sincerely believe if we do everything in our power to be obedient to the will of God, we and our families will never lack if we are obedient as true followers of Christ and share what we have with those less fortunate than we the Lord will keep his promise to watch over us and care for us. I will then be glad that I have stores of food on hand so I can be of assistance to others. Perhaps like the widow who fed Elijah, the meal will then never fail in our barrels nor the oil ever fail in our cruises until prosperity comes again. Now if the power of Elijah is so important in temporal affairs, think of the spiritual power he possessed. You remember, he could bind on earth or seal on earth and have it bound in heaven, or he could loose on earth and have it loosed in heaven. In his day, because of the wickedness of the people, he bound the heavens that it did not rain, and no rain fell until after he had shown the people the impotence and lack of power of the 450 priests of Baal. After they were destroyed, and the people humbled, Elijah, by the power of God, opened the heavens again, that rain fell to break the famine. This sealing power is characteristic of the prophets of God who hold full divine authority. Jesus promised this sealing power to Peter and said, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. However, this power did not come to Peter until one week later when Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him to the top of a high mountain. As they were there transfigured, Moses and Elias appeared to them and gave these apostles under the direction of Jesus Christ a fullness of divine priesthood authority. Remember that Elias is the Greek name for Elijah. Elijah, who is the last prophet of the Old Testament, to hold the keys of that sealing power, passed this power on to the prophets of the New Testament. There's great order in the priesthood, and the transfer of keys of authority is carried out carefully in the Lord's own way under his direction. Once this power was restored, it was possible to pass it on to all the apostles. As recorded in the scriptures, Jesus told the twelve, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bound on, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, 
and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's considerable confusion in the minds of students concerning the power of Elias and the power of Elijah. There was a prophet by the name of Elias, whom we know more familiarly as Noah. This office of Elias is that of a precursor or forerunner. Those who have this power are forerunners who prepare for greater things to follow. Such prophets carry the title of an Elias. The twelve, after they heard that Moses and Elijah had come, told Jesus they understood that Elias was to come first and ask for an explanation. Jesus told them the scriptures did teach that Elias must first come, and this doctrine was true and correct. Then he explained that John the Baptist was that Elias who was to prepare the way before him. But the people had not recognized him as such. Following this forerunner comes Elijah with a power to place the seals of the Melchizedek priesthood upon the house of Israel. And then comes the culmination of the Messiah, or anointed one, who is the Savior or Redeemer, with the greatest power of all. So it has been done in our day also. The forerunner of priesthood restoration was the return of John the Baptist as an Elias to restore the power of the Aaronic priesthood. Then came Peter, James, and John, who restored the greater or Melchizedek priesthood. But our generation is that generation of the fullness of times spoken of by Peter to be established in the last days. In this generation, therefore, there must be a restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Therefore, before Jesus comes, in all his power and glory, all things must be prepared beforehand, including the restoration of the sealing power of Elijah. Thus that prophecy given by Malachi must be fulfilled. I quote this promise as it was given by Moroni when he was sent to teach Joseph Smith at the beginning of this dispensation. Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. So important was this scripture that it is the only one I know of which is quoted almost word for word in all four standard works. The prophet, of, the prophet Elijah, with the keys of this sealing power, did come just as predicted. Those keys of the priesthood were restored in perfect order and harmony as was done on the Mount of Transfiguration. Each prophet, holding special keys of priesthood, appeared and restored them to prophets on the earth. Moses appeared, Elias came, then Elijah appeared and said, Behold, the time has fully come, which was spoken of by the mouth of Malachi, testifying that he, Elijah, should be sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord come to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest the whole earth be smitten with a curse. Therefore, the keys of this dispensation are committed into your hands, and by this ye may know that the great and dreadful day of the Lord is near, even at the doors. With this fulfillment of prophecy, 
All former priesthood powers were restored again to earth. Temples have been erected in which a fullness of these priesthood ordinances are made available for those who qualify themselves to receive them through faith and righteous living. Before the Savior comes again, power has been given us to proceed with a great priesthood work. We are to bind together the families of men in true patriarchal order so that through worthiness we may have the privilege to live in the celestial kingdom as children of God with resurrected bodies of flesh and bone to dwell eternally in the very presence of God the Eternal Father. Through this priesthood power, which has been again restored to prophets of God, we can be sealed as families on earth and have that sealing be effective in heaven. As authorized disciples of Jesus Christ, we can become in turn saviors, not only for our own living families, but also for our deceased progenitors. All it requires is the exercise of that simple faith to carry out this promise as the widow did for Elijah. She gave the last food she had as a token of her faith in God. Surely out of the great abundance God has given us, we can share some of our time and our means to do this spiritual work for the living and for the dead under the direction of modern prophets who hold the same fullness of priesthood power as did Elijah the Tishbite. President Kimball holds the keys of this sealing power to bind on earth and to have it bound in heaven. He is a true prophet of God, of which I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.